The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, Stories from Reformed Baptist History with Commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist History. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. From the time of Bernard Foskett, whoever was pastor of Broadmead Bristol Church was also in charge of training men for the Christian ministry. Since Broadmead was a sizable congregation, a helper for the pastor was needed. Foskett's first assistant was Andrew Gifford, the same named grandson of the famous pastor of the Pathay Church in Bristol. But he stayed for less than two years before being called to the ministry of Little Wild Street Church in London. Two other men were tried out in the position, but neither succeeded. Then a Welshman named Hugh Evans came to their attention. But before we proceed with his ministerial story, let me give you a bit of background on him. Hugh Evans came from a line of Baptist pastors. His grandfather, Thomas Evans, was licensed to preach during the Commonwealth period and led a Welsh parish until the monarchy was restored. In 1662, he was put out of his position after which he joined a Baptist church in Pentry, Wales, and he became their pastor. Thomas's eldest son was named Caleb. He succeeded his father as pastor and remained there until his death. One of Caleb's sons was Hugh, the subject of our study. He was born in 1713 and given an excellent education under the care of a nearby dissenting minister. It was during his time at school that Hugh came to savingly know Jesus Christ. He later thanked God for his father's influence on him, the prayers at school, and the preaching of one he called, quote, that eminent servant of God, old Mr. Enoch Francis. All these played a role in his conversion. About the year 1730, he visited family in Bristol in order to get medical attention for a foot injury. While there, he worshipped at Broadmead and met Foskett. Later that year, on August 7th, he was baptized by Foskett and joined the church. The pastor must have been impressed with Hugh, because he was soon studying under him, helped by a gift to cover the cost of books. Foskett tried to prevail on Hugh to preach, but the modest young man would not. And the next year, returned to Wales, probably for health reasons. But Foskett wasn't giving up. He wrote to Caleb Evans, Hugh's father, and urged him to have the church in Pentry hear Hugh preach. The young man was willing to preach for them, and they were encouraged by the results. I can't help but wonder if some of his hesitation 
had to do with preaching in Welsh or English. Hugh was conversant in both, but perhaps felt more comfortable in a Welsh-language church context, at least to begin. Under a sermon by Joseph Stennett at Broadmead, he was convicted to pursue the ministry. His spiritual progress was rapid, and he soon came to the attention of churches needing a pastor. But Foskett had Hugh return to Broadmead, and in September of 1733, aged just 20, he first preached for the church. The next year, the church voted unanimously to recognize his gift, allowing him to preach wherever the Lord led him. Then in 1735, the church called him to be Foskett's assistant, which he accepted. This brings us back to the start of the story. As assistant, Foskett was something like a pastor in training and tutor to students. He served well and in 1740 was ordained as teaching elder and co-pastor with Foskett. This achieved several purposes. First, it was clear he had the qualifications for the pastoral office. Second, this authorized him to administer the ordinances when Foskett was away. And third, it secured his succession to Foskett as pastor at his death. In studying these two men, they appear as very different in their gifts and personalities. Foskett was the reserved bachelor, an intellectual, and a man of great integrity. You may recall from last time John Rippon's assessment of him as a tutor. Effective, but not flashy. On the other hand, Evans was married twice and had at least 13 children. Now hear how Roger Hayden describes Evans, quoting Rippon again in part. Rippon's evaluation of Hugh Evans was very different. Evans's warmth and liveliness was evident in his gift in both private and public prayers, and in his preaching, which ranged masterfully over large themes with energy and fervor. None knew better than Hugh Evans, claimed Rippon, what it was to reign over his audience, enlightening their understanding, convincing their judgment, and then kindling all their noble passions in a blaze of devotion. And so together, the two men made a good pastoral and tutoring team until Foskett passed to his reward in 1758. Evans kept a strong connection to his Welsh roots. He frequently preached at the Baptist Association meetings there, and about half of the students he trained at the academy came from Wales. So he had a tremendous impact on the next generation of Welsh churches. The Western Baptist Association also had strong growth during this time under his leadership. The number of churches doubled, and on average, 47 members were added to the churches each year. The continued commitment to Orthodox confessionalism and active evangelistic preaching was blessed by God. When Evans came to support Foskett in training ministers, the number of students also rapidly increased. From four students in the 1720s, the numbers grew to 16 in the 1730s, 29 in the 1740s, and 24 in the 1750s. The graduates served predominantly in Western England, with half of the churches in the Western Association gaining a pastor from the school. 
Most of the rest ministered in Wales, with some in northern England, Ireland, London, and even a few in America. After 1770, one of the emphases Evans included in their training was preaching in villages and needy areas. All the men approved by their home churches to study for the ministry were required to do itinerant preaching. Others of them preached in the churches of pastors who headed regular mission trips to spiritually destitute Cornwall and North Wales. To these men, Evans became a strong father figure. He cared for them during their studies, even housing some of them for years in his home. After they took up ministry, he continued to care for and encourage them. This was rooted in his conviction that Scripture required this of pastors. One of his few publications was a 1773 sermon entitled, quote, Ministers Described Under the Characters of Fathers and Prophets. John Rippon remarked, Everyone who sat at his feet recognized in him a friend and a father. But this attention to the students did not mean that the church was neglected. Evans led in worship and preaching and, of course, dispensing the Lord's table. Communion was celebrated monthly, with a day set aside the week before for a special sermon and time of preparation. These were considered so important, yes, even sacred or holy, that offers of preaching elsewhere or other interruptions were routinely turned down. When disciplinary situations arose, Evans took charge. He followed Foskett's example in compassion for the needy of various sorts. For example, there's a record of Evans helping a man with a serious speech impediment write his answers to membership questions so he could join the church. When another man named Joseph Byrd failed to show up for his own wedding, Evans properly pressured and encouraged him to fulfill his duties. In at least one area of church life, though, that of baptism, Evans appears to have held an unusual position. There are notes recorded from a sermon he preached in 1758 in a joint service of the Broadmead and Pathay churches that claims, he said, that sprinkling was valid and even infant baptisms. His Catholicity with other true believers was well known, but these views on baptism caused the Pathay church to discontinue these joint meetings and must have brought tension and sorrow to at least some. However, within Broadmead, it was probably accepted of a sort. Two years earlier, in 1756, he had taken the 60 Pado-Baptists who worshipped regularly at Broadmead and formed them into a separate church of which he was also the pastor. He administered the Lord's Supper to them separately as well. It was called the Little Church and continued into the next century before being absorbed back into Broadmead. Since the church's beginnings in Puritan congregationalism, there had always been a mix of views on baptism. But by the 1670s, the overwhelming majority of members were Baptist by conviction and practice. They signed the 1689 Confession of Faith as a church. Foskett's strong confessionalism must have continued more Baptistic views. But Hugh Evans had a broader understanding, and he put it into practice. Other churches don't seem to have been tempted to follow his example. In 
nor is there any evidence that his students imitated him in these practices. Well, Evans pressed on in his busy ministry, finishing his course in 1781. Next time, we'll look at one of his sons, named after his father, Caleb, who followed him in the ministry. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace. Thank you.